0: Hello and welcome to Music Ally Focus with me, Music Ally's editor Joe Sparrow, and in this episode we'll be talking about post-primary ticketing platform Light, and their chief strategy officer Lawrence Perrier will be joining us to talk about dynamic ticket pricing, the concept of fairness in ticketing, and the price point at which tickets are sold. Now, what is the Focus Podcast? Well, Music Ally provides an analysis-rich and contextual guide to the music business, and each of these episodes analyzes one meaningful music business story at a time. This podcast is also going to be quick. It'll take about the same amount of time as Paolo Scannavino could enter into and then subsequently burst 120 giant balloons. The extremely agile Paolo entered and burst 11 giant balloons in two minutes In 2012, Another record we think that is aching to be beaten. Now, talking of things blowing up, you'll have noticed that ticket prices for live shows have been getting steadily, and perhaps not so steadily, higher in the last few years. You'll have certainly felt the frustration as well of seeing tickets that you wanted being snapped up by bots and then sold on the secondary market for inflated prices. And there are plenty of different ways of buying tickets now, including Light's dynamic model. Light says that their mission is to fill every seat with real tickets at fair prices. So we wanted to know what this means, how it works, and what the future of ticketing could be like if Light's approach is widely adopted. Let's go over to Lawrence now. So I am very happy to welcome Light's Chief Strategy Officer, uh, Lawrence Purya, to the podcast. Hi, Lawrence. Oh, it's so so great to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, a pleasure. Now, we're talking about ticketing. There's a little bit of Very, very light context, I'll let you explain how everything works, but that was not an intended joke, by the way, but light context around light. Light's platform allows fans to reserve, return and exchange tickets, amongst other things, and we want to talk to Lawrence about the needs of ticketing fans in 2022 and what the new models of ticketing means for artists, performers, and of course, importantly, consumers and what fans actually want. So, Lawrence... Can you explain then what Light's model is? What is post-primary ticketing and what is dynamic ticketing in the sort of lens of your model? Yeah, that's that's a
1: great place to start. We used to think of post-primary ticketing as everything that happened after the first time the ticket was sold. And we distinguish it from secondary ticketing partially because that language is so loaded in our industry, both in the industry and with consumers, we didn't want people to think that we were simply um, providing solutions around secondary ticketing. It was really about what are all the possible things that happen after the first time a ticket is sold? And then how do we make those transactions and that activity safer for the consumer um, and within the ecosystem of the of the event of the person who took risk on that event how do they keep their eyes on basically the life of a ticket and some of the things that happen in post-primary ticketing is that um you might buy four tickets and you have to get the other three to your friends um you might give a ticket away you might sell it on facebook you might sell it for a profit um you might never use the ticket and not go to the show and become a no-show, which is actually a big problem in our industry and and more acute coming out of the pandemic. So post-primary ticketing was a way to say there's a whole bunch of activity that goes on after a ticket is sold. And it's too narrow to simply think of it as secondary, as a resale for-profit motive. It's more about how do we provide tools and e-commerce uh, capabilities for fans who have lots of needs around their ticket after they buy it the first time.
0: Yeah. What's the What's the main thing that fans do when, when you know, the fans who bought a ticket and then want to use your platform? What's the sort of what, is there a, like a sort of hierarchy of, of what what uh, what functions they use online?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. It's I would say broadly speaking, it's one function which I'll articulate in a moment. It's really their needs and motivations that tend to represent the hierarchy. So the function is that I bought one or more tickets that I no longer need. What choices do I have now? In the old world, your choices were give them away, um don't use the ticket, uh become an amateur ticket tout and try to sell them somewhere. Um and so and there could be a variety of motivations behind that. The babysitter canceled, I got the flu, I got covid. Um, I had to travel for work. You know, who knows what gets in the way between the time you buy a ticket and nine months later when the event happens. It's a a heavy lift that our industry has put on the back of consumers. You know, decide where you're going to be nine months from today um, as though it's the only thing going on in your world. And so de-risking or getting myself out of a ticket position is the primary thing people use light for. And so in V1 of light, version one of light, It was just returning your ticket, coming back to the place where you originally bought the ticket. That could be the festival's website or the venue's website, and clicking the button that says return my ticket. And light was the e commerce experience on the background that allowed you to return the ticket. And by allowing people to return tickets, what you're really doing is you're choking off supply that goes to the secondary market. And once you start to do that, all kinds of magical things happen. But that's really the initial um use case for light is to help fans who no longer need a ticket um get themselves out of the position
0: light pitches this process and the dynamic pricing around it as a fairer model that means quote ticket scalpers and the secondary market end up with less money in their pockets i guess that connects to what you were just saying that fewer tickets reach the scalper's ticket outs and secondary market. So how does it work? How does the system work from like a fan end and perhaps from the industry end? And and how, what about the dynamic pricing part?
1: Yeah, so um, I think to to I'll sort of start at the end and uh, with the why of dynamic pricing, because I sense that, that that's a little bit of the underlying question. And basically the way, the, the sort of one liner that we've always used was that we weaponize pricing. And what I mean by that is if you are, let's say you're going to go to um, an event that is using light and the event is sold out, you go to the official website and it says sold out in the old days. Like, what did you do if you wanted to go to that event? Well, you immediately went to one of the secondary websites and you started looking and it was all the anxiety around that. Are these prices good? Is this fair? I guess I'm just going to pay whatever I think I can afford. Am I going to get a real ticket? That tension of walking up to the gate and wondering if the ticket's going to work just not a great fan experience and certainly nothing like what we would call a modern e-commerce experience, right? Like you don't have that experience anywhere else. Um or if you do it's 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 minimal anywhere else. Maybe like the collectibles market on eBay or something like that. Um But it shouldn't be the case in a world where it's a digital product that's easily verifiable, right? Um, So we turned our back on customers for a long time and said, we're sold out, go somewhere else. But what we also knew as an industry was that there was lots of supply sloshing around out there. So right now, instead of having to go to the vagaries of the sort of unaffiliated secondary market, what happens now is there's a button that says sold out, get on the wait list. When you click the wait list button, that launches light. And algorithmically, there's a bunch of sort of smart people, smarter than me math going on, that's trying to come up with a price to give you. And the price is designed to get you to say yes. So it's not about how do we get the most money out of Joe's pocket? It's how do we get Joe to say yes to this price? The assumption is Joe's got four or five browser windows open, He's looking on StubHub and Vivid and anywhere else people are going to buy tickets, and he's price shopping. And so the algorithm is doing all of this, uh, all this predictive modeling. It might be how far away from the event is Joe's IP address, how far away in time is the event, because we know all these things about the supply and demand curves around events that have that are basically true uh, across all kinds of event types. But the final thing the algorithm does before it gives you a price is it sort of takes a survey of the secondary market um, through a variety of means. It is looking up pricing, and it makes sure that the price it offers you is lower than the current price on the secondary market. Low enough so you're getting the best price, but not so low that it's creating another profit opportunity. So it's going to undercut the secondary, but it's going to not leave enough margin for just Other brokers to come in, buy those tickets, and sell them. We're we're basically taking away the profit incentive. Um, And so what we see is that events that have light enabled have far less secondary market activity. And over time, all that buying and selling of tickets comes back into the official ecosystem. So the fan knows they're getting a real ticket. They know they're getting the best price. And the event producer, the person who took the risk on the event, is capturing any resulting Revenue, if there is any, if there is lift on those tickets, they're getting all the consumer data and they're starting to get a really deep understanding of the true demand for their event. Because what used to happen is you never knew how many times a ticket turned. If I sold 10,000 tickets to my event, how many actual transactions were there? Were there 15,000? Were there 20,000? Were there another 20,000 people who wanted to go to the event and I never knew? Now you're starting to capture all that insight and you can plan better going forward. So that's that's how we use dynamic pricing.
0: So that so j- just to understand that then. So let's say let's say I bought a ticket to an event I couldn't go. So I return the ticket essentially through the through the platform. The platform then finds the current price for uh, based on the desire for that ticket and the parameters you said and then it's resold at that price and the 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 original seller if if that let's say that ticket Sells for 25% more, that money is captured by the original seller and I guess a, a slice for light.
1: The original no. seller simply gets what they paid back. So if you, you know, if, if you're if you're Joe and you bought a ticket and it was 25 pounds plus five dollars in fees or whatever, our system is designed to give you back what you paid. So now you've returned your ticket. It's just as though you bought that shirt somewhere. And you went back to the store and they gave you your money back. They didn't say to you, well, we're going to put it back out on the floor. If we sell it, we'll call you and give you your money back. We just give you your money back and you go about your way and you're happy. And now we have a regular price piece of inventory that's back in the system and we sell it at whatever the current market rate is. Sometimes the price goes below face value. It depends on where the event is in the supply and demand curve. I mean, you know, the an industry audience will understand that you know, the, the two sort of peaks for demand are when the event first goes on sale and, or first sells out, you know, there's all that velocity and and demand, and then it goes into a very fallow period. Um, And then there's another, another sort of spike in demand closer to the event. Um, Yeah. And, and so in that time where there's very little demand, that's often where the supply hits the market. Right, like that's that that weird middle period is when you realize, oh, my plans changed. Oh, I bought a ticket to the same night as my wedding anniversary, or whatever it is. So we're trying to capture all that supply that comes back into the market, um, and 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 sort of the algorithm is trying to match that supply and demand.
0: So we're talking about fairness of price, and this is something that fans of. Have- and artists as well are, are very vocal about it, that. They you know, they they want they don't want to feel like they're being ripped off because no one likes that. And of course, we're all aware that the cost of living is going through the roof at the moment. And one, let's, let's call it a scourge of um, modern gig yeah. going are, are automated scalpers, ticket touts, bots that snap up tickets from faster than humans can do it and then flip them onto the secondary market immediately and real fans go to the... The link that has been shared by their favourite artist—it's sold out. They are directed straight to a secondary market, and they're playing—they're paying prices that they're expecting to pay seventy euros for a ticket, and now they're thinking about two hundred. Or, you know, that's an extreme example, but it's significantly more. Yeah. Now, I hate that. I think everybody hates that. It's happening. Um, there are people who enjoy that. I think it's people making the money. So how <laughs> how does Light's model help avoid that? Um,
1: yeah, I've only described uh, part of our platform or sort of version one of our platform. What, happened, uh, what started to happen before the pandemic and really accelerated during the pandemic was that we had clients come to us and say, what if we took the wait list and put it up before we ever even went on sale? Or what if we took the wait list and put it up when we were in the very, very early planning stages? Because it's great that we learn all these things about our event by using light, and then we can apply them next time we go on tour, the next time we put up a festival, or at some point in the future. But what if we used the waitlist technology to get a better understanding of the demand for our event before we ever even go on sale? Get a better feel for what the pricing is, get a better feel for... uh the the, uh, the potential capacity just to start to gauge interest. And we've had clients who have used the wait list to do everything from, let's just put up a date and say, the festival's coming back on this date and see how much demand we collect just on the strength of the brand name of the festival. Or we've had tours where artists have said, let's just put up cities and see how many people sign up in each city. And then we'll route the tour accordingly. And so people come in and they place reservations They put down their credit card, they're given prices, and they start putting in reservations. And the innovation there, and I I promise you this is a long way to answer your question, is that it's not just going on social media and clicking a like button or giving an email address. You're actually saying, I'm making a reservation. I'm not getting charged right now. But if you choose to fill my reservation because you're coming to the city I want to go to, um, you can charge my card. And so it's actually demand signal. It's people who have put down a card with demand signal. So all that works to help deal with the bot and broker problem because it's slowing down the on sale and it's divorcing the time from when you place an order to when orders are fulfilled. And so it allows you to do all kinds of things. If people come in and place reservations, we could start to run some screening against those reservations. We could do pattern detection. We can do all these things proactively, that a lot of on sales used to have to do reactively. So you had all these stories before the pandemic, where artists would go through and cancel a bunch of tickets. And then all these, you know, because they would say, Oh, my gosh, this broker bought 5000 tickets to my tour, go cancel all the all those orders. And it made everybody feel good, like they were doing something but it completely ignored the fact that the brokers sold those tickets to real fans. So what happened to all those fans who had their tickets canceled? It created all kinds of problems in the ecosystem. So we're saying stop reacting, <laughs> like do this all up front, and allocate tickets more slowly. Get rid of the idea of everything goes on sale Friday morning at 10 a.m. It's a ridiculous notion anyway. Like why why can't you just be always on sale? I want to go to Glastonbury next year. I'm going to decide today. You might decide in three months, why can't we both just buy tickets when we're ready to? I think the industry has conflated on sales with marketing, and they've said the on sale is a marketing event, as opposed to just saying, you know, like that shirt, it's always on sale, but sometimes there's Father's Day, sometimes there's Bastille Day, sometimes there's Labor Day, Memorial Day, Christmas. Let's have marketing events, but let's always be on sale. And the pricing changes around those marketing events around the time of the year, fans and consumers get that. Like it's things aren't always the same price. It's just that's that's called e-commerce. It's called retail. And I think um, we're, we're trying to foster a way to make adopting those proper retail and e-commerce principles safer for the risk taker of the event and better for the consumer.
0: And to jump in here, if you're finding this podcast useful and you want more of this kind of in-depth news and trusted analysis waiting for you in your email inbox every morning, as well as access to all of Music Ally's industry-leading reports and so on, head on over to musically.com slash subscribe. And don't forget, if you're an indie label, you're an artist manager, you're an employee of a CMO or a publisher, you, yes you, might be eligible for one of our sponsored, complimentary subscriptions as well. So head on over to musically.com slash subscribe to see if you can get it okay let's go back to the podcast what about um the the expectations of fans you know you you've mentioned there the, the frustration around the tickets on sale at 10 a.m on friday thing and and the, the scramble is um okay it's well it's stressful it's, it's stress inducing it also forces people to make decisions based on price that perhaps they hadn't made already and it's it's it feels a little bit um, flimsy as a as a sometimes as a sort of a model because it feels like i'm i'm being my arms being twisted and i don't necessarily want that but how do you, with dynamic pricing you've you're, and you and you mentioned that you people are extremely familiar now with the ebbs and flow of the market you know that's that is something which is fairly normal for people's experiences buying things online buying plane tickets which fluctuate you know all these things can be frustrating um but how do you keep the dynamic pricing in step with fan expectations where they're not thinking oh i'm I'm getting i'm getting squeezed here
1: it's a great question and when i when in, in preparation for our conversation um I wasn't sure you know I don't know if it's a cultural difference between the states and the UK or EU. Um, and I, and I don't say this to be dismissive of the question, but it's not it's not something that I, I want to be respectful of the question. I don't know if it's if it's a problem. I don't know if it's really the problem. Like we don't hear a consumer outcry. here's what we do here. Everything's expensive. Why are concert tickets so expensive? What we don't hear is, why did Joe pay a different price than I did? I, I, don't th- I think it's just like on an airplane. I don't think two, two people show up at a gig and say, what did you pay? Um, any more than two people sit down on an airline and say, what did you pay? Because one, I think human nature is you don't want to know if somebody else got a different price than you. And two, like people are tactful. It's not the most important thing. If you didn't want to pay that price, you wouldn't be there you've paid the price that's right for you, even if it's more than you wanted to pay, you made a decision that seeing this gig was worth the price. I've certainly not gone to gigs that I didn't want to pay the price for. Um, And I didn't, you know, and then I moved on to the next thing in life. Um, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't rail at the universe about it. Uh, I may have had a moment of disappointment. I might not have even, I might've said, I'm not paying $85 for that band. It's not worth it. I used to love when I could see them for 45 and now they're at a price where it's 85, I'm moving on. Um, but my favorite bands, I'll pay $500 or more for um, it really just depends on what's right for any given consumer. So I, I again, I, I want to be direct and say, yes, of course there's always been fan. It's certainly in the last 20, 25 years or so of the industry consolidation as prices have gone up, that's a common thread with fans but i don't see it overtaking the conversation about dynamic pricing especially here in the states coming out of the pandemic dynamic pricing seems to have gotten much more mainstream even in the primary um i think most major tours now have an element of dynamic pricing and have for a while
0: well yes but to my next question which is we we, and i shared this with you in advance of this um this conversation that we published a guest column on music ally recently that pushed back quite firmly against and this is again as you've said uh, it pushed back against the adoption of mainstream dynamic ticketing in the usa where you can go to a insert your uh, mega conglomerate international ticket purchasing platform here and you, you you can find the original tickets if you're fast or you might also find on the same platform dynamically priced secondary tickets i'm not here to sort of ask you to argue against that guest column which i will, I will link to next to this um podcast but one of the interesting arguments there was i thought the sort of the original price of the tickets which and the, the author was essentially saying look if you think this ticket is worth 300 dollars, why why not just sell it at, from the outset at 300 dollars as opposed to and let it inflate to the secondary price and then get $300. The guest post was from Adam Webb. He was writing independently, um, but he is campaign manager for Fanfare Alliance, which is the UK-based campaign against online ticket touting.
1: But what if you don't know your tickets are worth £300 and the dynamic pricing is done based on the market conditions? I think we have to distinguish between what is dynamic pricing First of all, like we should agree on the definition of dynamic pricing. I think of dynamic pricing truly as um, not an unchecked market, but definitely an algorithmically based um, price generated based on market conditions at the moment. So that Joe comes in and gets a different price than Lawrence, depending on a bunch of different variables, time, distance, you know, et cetera. Um, I don't see anything particularly problematic with that, especially if it's in the service of the risk taker on the event, um, and it's made clear and safe for fans. Where I do see some problems with dynamic pricing, and even this, I'm, I'm hesitant to be critical of it, is if it's manual and it's, um, and it's uh, it's more about micro tiers. It's like, oh, I could charge $5,000 for the front row um, and uh, and then maybe $4,000 for the next row and then $3,000. But even that, I'm not sure that that's wrong um, because, again, like you're trying to, I mean, I, I've been involved in a lot of global tours, festivals, et cetera. It's expensive and talent's expensive. And so I'm not really sure Again, it's if it's the industry complaining, I have less sort of empathy than if it's the fan. If it's the industry complaining, my answer would be you really all should know better. Like you all know what it costs. If you're if you're if you're on the artist representation side and you're complaining, well, there are two things you could do. You could increase supply by performing more in a market and just choke out um the, the supply issue. Um or you could have a conversation around talent fees. If you're the risk taker, if you're the promoter, you could encourage the talent to get to true market pricing from day one. But I think that everybody has different um, you know, different needs. And I think there's an issue of sort of fairness on that side as well. Who else manufactures or makes something and doesn't want to have some control over the price they put it out at? That's a fair thing. Um And I think that an artist who wants their ticket prices to be a certain price has the right to put them out at $100, even if it's worth $500. They have brand reasons. They have a lot of reasons that aren't just fear. It's like, I care about how I present myself to my fans. The problem is we live in a world where that's not enough. And so we need solutions to deal with the fact that, yes, Bruce Springsteen has a right to have a $100 ticket and my hat's off to him for trying to you know, be empathetic to his fans around ticket pricing. And maybe it's not Bruce's problem to solve what happens after the tickets sold. But I think it's ours as an industry, we care about the health because we have to deal with the next three tours that come up and we have to make sure there's enough money left in people's wallets to go to those tours or to walk in the venue and buy a beer and buy a t-shirt and pay for parking. So um, it's a complex issue And um, I think that everybody just needs the right to make the decisions that are appropriate for their business and then be transparent and fair with fans. I I think that my naivete comes in because I believe these things are all reconcilable. Um, You know, we've been in this situation where we've had like artists, um, I'll call them promoters, but I mean, you know, the business, the people that take risk on the events and then fans. And it's usually been two of those constituents can win at the expense of the other and it's been like that way you know if the artist wins it's because the fan paid more and the promoter paid more if the fan wins it's because the artist chose to make less or the promoter got squeezed like it's just not it's not it's been very zero sum and i think that there are ways to use pricing to use access to tickets um to control distribution to make it all fairer that's the thesis
0: we're trying to prove yeah yeah. Um, finally, you know, we, we've come out of this t- t- two years of um, chaos around the live music industry. Um, live shows are returning. Fans are flocking to go to shows again. The shows are coming thick and fast because they're all Ooh. sort of piling up. And um, in many ways, it looks like live shows as a concept are, are sort of, if anything, more popular than pre-COVID. You know, at the yeah. moment, at least, people are uh, they wanting to get back, sort of, stuck into it. In terms of ticketing innovation, then on the horizon what beyond what you've talked about what what sort of innovation is there that is coming up do you think that will please artists and fans and promoters and venues you know is it is there something that we haven't really put a finger on yet that could be really important everybody's asking the same questions like how big is the
1: appetite in the market how many shows can people go to how many premium priced shows can people go to like I I think that while it's an exuberant moment, it's also a bit scary because nobody knows where this is going. Um, And one of the things that's always concerned me is that the concert industry grows the top line, but it's on fewer attendees. I don't want the concert industry to look like the movie business, um, where the only way to grow is by charging higher prices. I really want more people to go to live events. So I uh, you know I so I'll say I do love the the demand aggregation in general. and there's other people doing things like it, probably not as good as we're doing, but <laughs> but there's other attempts to do that. Um, and I think more broadly, I think you know e-commerce has never really come to ticketing. People have heard me say this and it, it, it's a bit glib on my part. but um you know, we took the ticket transaction, I walk up to the booth. I request tickets. I hand you my money. I walk away, and we digitized that. But that's not really e-commerce. E-commerce has all these other capabilities: um, returnability, um, transferability, uh, reservations, um, payment plans, uh, safety, security, uh, trackability, um, preference-based—you know—psychographic buying and selling, like when we can really apply e-commerce principles shopping carts um to the ticket process more people will go to more shows and and they will they will happily spend more money because it will be a better experience right well
0: uh, as we step into this brave new world of uh uh, seemingly, uh, half a dozen shows every night uh, that yeah. we, we all want to attend. Uh, let's let's see what happens. But yes, thank you, uh, uh, Lawrence, and uh, thanks for joining us. And uh, very quickly, very very quickly, I remembered. I just remembered that at the beginning I meant to ask you the bonus question at the start, which was to set context. But this is now going to be reverse context, which is if you could take only one piece of music, what would it be? Oh. And I can see in the background on the Zoom call, by the way, much music merchandise pinned to the wall behind him. So, <laughs> yeah. the trophies of a of a of a misspent career. <laughs> mm. So the
1: question is, if I could take just one pick piece, pick one, of, yeah, yeah, and um and and where am I going?
0: <laughs> well, yeah, well, well, we don't know. <laughs> uh, let's let's just oh. say that everything else gets deleted. Let's put it that way. Wow,
1: Joe, that is that that is. Mm. Who is mm. the sadist that is doing that to me? Mm. Um. Mm. You know, it, the short answer, of course, is it depends on the day. Yeah. But today, um, it's a slightly gloomy day here just outside of Seattle. Um, and I think it would be a really good day for Dark Side of the Moon. I feel a little oh, reflective, you. a little pensive. Um, I need a little comfort food. And that record always, despite decades of listening to it, always reveals something comforting yet new to me every time. So today's, today's pick is Dark Side of the Moon. Good
0: answer. No one's ever said that before, so uh, you you explained it well. So thank you very much, uh, Lawrence, for joining us. Joe, thank you so much. So if you found that useful, please share this podcast on with someone else who you think will get something out of it. And if you'd like to continue the conversation with me, please do email me. Uh, It's joe at musically.com. That's joe, J-O-E, at musically.com. If you would like to stay in touch with Music Ally, we have a free weekly email called The Knowledge, which arrives in your inbox every Friday with a wet thump and rounds up a soupçon of the best analysis, news, marketing insight and skills, all pulled from Music Ally's wider service. So sign up and impress your boss. Links are in the description, along with everything we mentioned in the podcast, as always. Well, that's it. Uh, thank you ever so much, as always, for joining us here on the Music Ally Focus podcast. And from me, Joe Sparrow, Music Ally's editor, farewell. <laughs>